the Word of God. Uh, a lot of you know the name uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, obviously from uh, his famous Sherlock Holmes series of, of short stories. Um, a lot of people think he sort of essentially launched the, the crime mystery genre, uh, but he also wrote historical novels. A lot of people don't realize that. And he tells an interesting story in his history of the Boer War, uh, which was a turn of the 20th century war between the British Empire and some sort of vassal states of theirs in uh, South Africa. I won't go into a whole lot of detail there, but I can't resist the urge to mention, though, that the, the war between the British Empire and the Boer states kind of centered on Dutch Reformed Calvinism, so just for what that's worth. But anyway, um, but he tells the story on uh, one occasion of how a comparatively small detachment of the British Army was surprised by a force from the Boer Army that was twice its size. And the British were driven back upon their camp, and the Boers kind of took over a strategic position from which they were able to kind of put the English on the ropes in this, in this one battle. And the British, who had been wounded <coughs> in the earlier part of uh, the action, found themselves in a terrible position. They were sort of laid out, wounded and bleeding, and under relentless barrage of gun and cannon fire, and a corporal in the infantry who was part of this endangered group, according to the story by uh, Doyle, um, was, was thinking to himself, you know, we've got to do something. We've got to raise a white flag with the Red Cross on it to signify to the enemy that we're wounded and to let up or we're going to die before help will reach us. We'll be blown away. But the problem was they had nothing from which they could fashion a, a white flag. So the corporal said uh, in, in this story, we had a pillow but no red paint. Then the soldier came up with a solution. That pillow became a makeshift flag. And on it, he made a vertical line with his own blood and then a cross line with the blood of one of his fellow soldiers. And that grim flag with the blood red cross on a white background was respected by the Boers in the enemy camp. And those lying beneath it were saved. The analogy is clear. I mean, today, guilty sinners are strewn across the battlefield of earth, but we find refuge beneath the blood-stained cross of Christ that we've been singing about this morning. You know, there, there is no more important subject in the Bible than the blood of Christ. And that's not just a preacher being hyperbolic. You know, the blood of Christ is tied to so many other crucial Subjects. The blood of Christ is tied to the cross, the atoning work of Christ, our redemption, our forgiveness, our eternal life, and many other doctrines that relate to our salvation, which we're studying, by the way, on Wednesday nights in our midweek Bible study, are all sort of connected to the blood of Christ. It's a central redemptive theme from Genesis to Revelation in God's Word. Because of the shed blood of Christ, you and I can be made new. We can be reborn. We can have a restored and right relationship with God. We can be reconciled to our Creator. We can avoid the penalty of sin. And because of the blood of Christ, all things will be made new someday in the kingdom. 
And so as we continue this journey through the book of Hebrews, the writer in the latter part of chapter 9, which is where we are, kind of turns his attention uh, to the blood of Christ. He sort of already mentioned it at the beginning part of chapter 9, but in this broader section, and really in a manner of speaking throughout the book of Hebrews, he's been contrasting the Judaistic system, the Jewish sacrificial system, and its inferiority to Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he's talked about how the priestly ministry of Christ is superior. The, 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 the temple rituals that the Jews uh, engaged in were only a shadow of the ultimate reality in Christ and how he is now in a temple not made with hands, not an earthly temple, but a heavenly temple. He's continued to contrast various heavenly and earthly aspects and always showing that Jesus Christ is far superior to anything Judaism has to offer. And now he turns his attention to the blood. You know, blood sacrifice was a was, a, was integral to the entire Jewish sacrificial system. And in our text this morning, the writer is going to show that Jesus, as a superior priest with a superior ministry from a superior place in heaven, also shed his own blood, which is far superior than, to the blood of lambs and goats. And, and we saw that lamb earlier today, two-day-old lamb, uh, to kind of give us a visual of what that meant. So the book of Hebrews is trying to encourage us to hang on to our faith, to trust God in trying times, to recognize that the Jesus who saved you is better than anything else you might instinctively in your flesh want to run to and flee to in times of trouble. So we come to uh, chapter 9, and again he's going to continue the discussion about Christ as our ultimate once-for-all sacrifice and our perpetual high priest who doesn't have to come back again and again. But I see in this section here seven things that Christ accomplished by his own blood. Seven things. And there are many things that Christ accomplished. These are certainly not all of them. But the writer of Hebrews touches really on the most significant ones. As I said, the blood of Christ is a theme that uh, you know, we call it the scarlet thread of redemption. Uh, I've got a, a video that I did several years ago on the crimson thread that touches from Genesis to Revelation on this theme of the blood of Christ. But right here, just one right after the other, the, the writer touches on key aspects of that were things that were accomplished by Christ's own blood. For example, by his own blood, Jesus Christ ratified the covenant. Now we talked about the covenant earlier on in this series, and we talked about it again last week. If you think the new covenant, which is far better than the old covenant, has been inaugurated and fulfilled today, you're in for a huge surprise when Christ returns. Because although it has been ratified, it has not been inaugurated. And so much of the writer's challenge to, to us to hang on to the faith in tough times is, is a challenge to look forward to a better day is coming. Remember, and I've said this before, but he starts out in early pages of this letter. We find it in chapter 2 once they added the chapter divisions. And he says, I'm writing you to you about the world to come, not the world now. And I, I can't help but think that we, like them, they, have to re be reminded of that same thing. It's not about the world we live in now. Thank the Lord. Amen? Because... 
though we've been spoiled as Western American Christian evangelicals, we're kind of heading down a road that the trajectory doesn't look very promising. We may face some suffering and some persecution. We may not be able to openly worship the Lord and share Christ and carry Bibles on buses and in classrooms and so forth, right? We may not be able to do that. We don't know. Uh, but we're certainly not entitled to that because many believers for the last 2,000 years have not been able to do those things. And so it's important to remember that the world that now is is not the world that will be. And, and, and the writer says, God has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. He's put it in subjection to his son, who is currently right now sitting at the right hand of God at the throne of waiting, ready to come back and establish his kingdom. As we've been talking about in our Sunday school hour, our Bible study hour, uh, there are a lot of things that have to happen before Christ comes back. And that will happen according to God's prophetic plan. But one thing that the blood of Christ did is it ratified the covenant. Look at uh, verse eight, verses 16 to 18 here. He, he says, For where there is a testament, uh, there must also be of necessity the death of the testator. Now that's a mouthful, but if you kind of put it in plain contemporary language. Basically what he's saying is that in some respects the covenants that God made with mankind are similar to wills. And as it's true with wills, the person who made the will has to die before the beneficiaries experience any effects of the will. So too it is with these, covenant, with these covenants. He goes on, for a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, he says, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. So he's going all the way back to the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, in Exodus, where we read that Moses uh, took half the blood and put it in basins. This is from the oxen that were chosen to be sacrificed in verse 5. I don't have it on the screen, but that's the context. So half the blood of the oxen were put in basins, and half were sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the Book of the Covenant, the Old Covenant, the Law, and he read in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. That was the Old Covenant. If you remember, some time ago, we talked about how the Mosaic Covenant was a conditional covenant. It was an if-then. It was a contract, if you will, a bilateral agreement. If you do this, I'll do this. Blessings and cursings. But the New Covenant that was ratified by the blood of Christ was far better than that. It's not an if-then it's an unconditional covenant. It's simply an I will. It's a promise of God. And Jeremiah the prophet, uh, you know, a thousand years after this occasion in Exodus, promised that a new covenant would be coming. He said, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Jeremiah 31. And that covenant was made and ratified when? In the upper room. When Jesus, we read, took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant. Not the old one, not the if-then, not the law that was powerless to make people righteous, not the law which nobody can keep, not the law which all it does is highlight our sinfulness and our need for a Savior, but the new covenant which is shed for many, for the remission of sins. So the blood of Christ that was shed literally you know, a day after, within 24 hours of him 
giving us the Lord's Supper and sort of saying symbolically, look, this is my blood of the new covenant that's about to be shed. Uh, it ratified this new covenant. Now, we've talked about this before. I thought it would be worth just throwing it up here without going through it slide by slide. But God's covenant promise all started with the Abrahamic covenant, which was an unconditional I will statement. You see in brown there at the bottom uh, of the screen there where it says Mosaic covenant. Uh, that's one of God's covenants that we just talked about, but it was not unconditional. It's not part of the unconditional covenant represented there in the light blue because it was an if-then. It was a rule of law. It was put in place as a stewardship to help Israel maintain order. But Galatians tells us when Christ came, they didn't need the law. They didn't, we don't need the law anymore. We now have the law written on our hearts, the Spirit of God. But in blue, you see the Abrahamic covenant, which involved a promise of land, seed, and blessing uh, for universe, universally for the globe. And then God amplified that covenant through three additional unconditional covenants called the land or Palestinian covenant. Sometimes you'll see it called the Davidic covenant, talking about how Christ would reign as king over all the earth forever and ever. And then there you see it. The new covenant is part of God's covenant promise. But all of that, though it has all been ratified, will not be inaugurated until Christ comes back to establish his kingdom. Romans 11, 26 and 27, you see referenced on the screen there, talks about how when the deliverer comes out of Zion, then he will deliver Israel into this global kingdom. And he will take the throne. And at that time, Christ will sit on the throne in the rebuilt temple, according to Ezekiel in Jerusalem and will rule and reign with a rod of iron. So this covenant promise, again, serves as the guarantee of the kingdom. And by his own blood, Jesus Christ ratified that covenant. It's all signed, sealed, and delivered. It hasn't been inaugurated yet. We talked about several weeks ago when I went through this that the analogy that's maybe easy for us to understand is in American elections. Now, of course, of late, American elections have gotten to be pretty bizarre and mixed up and confusing and who knows what to believe, but at least for decades and for, you know, uh, in theory, you have an election that is ratified and then later on the winner is inaugurated, right? They're not the same thing. So the blood of Christ ratified the covenant program of God, specifically the new covenant aspect, but it's not been inaugurated yet. And we look forward, as did the original readers of Hebrews, to that day when it will be. So by his own blood, he ratified the covenant, but also by his own blood, he purified the guilty. He purified uh, the guilty. Notice what he says in verses 19 and 20. For when Moses had spoken every precept, every law, part of the old covenant, to the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. The old covenant went into effect when the Levitical priests shed the blood of animal substitutes and applied that blood to the covenant beneficiaries, namely the nation of Israel. It was a national corporate thing. Uh, no individual Jew received eternal life because of the sacrificial system. As we've talked about at length, the sacrificial system was simply a shadow picturing the ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? But the nation of Israel received as a benefit the blessings that were promised in this quid pro quo Old Testament covenant, this, 
this if-then statement, this conditional covenant. And uh, the new covenant similarly went into effect when Jesus, the Lamb of God, shed his blood and applied it spiritually to every individual. Notice verse 21. Then likewise he sprinkled both both the uh, sprinkled both, both the tabernacle and the vessels of ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. That's the principle. Notice he says almost all, because in the Old Testament covenant, in the old law, there was an exception for the poor, where they could bring you know, a flower offering, for example, in, in place of uh, you know, the very minimal offering of two uh, doves. But you know, life is in, in the blood, and it, you know, the payment for sin is life, is death, and the shedding of blood. We talked about this uh, Wednesday night. We're talking about redemption. We're going to pick up that discussion again this Wednesday. And we talked about how going all the way back to the garden, we begin to see this principle of without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. How do we see that? Well, we see it, first of all, when Adam and Eve sinned, then for the first time they noticed they were naked. And what, what did God do? He provided animal skins for their covering. Now, there had been no death in the garden before that moment. You know, death was a consequence of sin. It's one of the reasons... Uh, we believe in a young earth and because we believe, first of all, we believe the first five words of the Bible, in the beginning God, and we understand that death is the result of sin. So you can't have millions of years of death and destruction and decay, and then man sins. It doesn't work that way. Death is the result and consequence of sin. Before Adam and Eve sinned, there was no death. So now here they are, they're being covered, symbolically representing the covering of their sins with an animal skin. Where did that animal skin come from? I mentioned, you know, Wednesday night, uh, I grew up hunting, been hunting most of my uh, life, uh, and killed many, many deer and turkey and dove and quail and other animals, but I've never once skinned a deer until after it was dead. In fact, that can be dangerous to try to do that. You know, and if you're a hunter, you know what I mean. Try, try skinning an elk before it's dead. <laughs> People have died. You know, you shoot an animal and you think it's dead. You go up there and you got your buck knife and you get, and all of a sudden that thing rears its head because he wasn't dead yet and, and you can get impaled with a, a antler. So the, the animal coverings in the garden was the first example of death. And then, of course, we can go on to Cain and Abel. And what do we see? They both bring their offerings. One was a grain offering, a fruit produce offering. One was a shed blood of animals offering. Which one did God accept? The animal blood of Abel, right? And then we continue to see this through the sacrificial system. We see it for prefigured in Abraham and Isaac, even before the sacrificial system was put in place. So without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. And so, you know, as we've been singing about this morning, uh, we, we see in the book of Revelation that we will be singing this again. Uh, this is the, in the introduction to the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, the one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. As Jeff mentioned, you know, it's kind of a paradox because normally you think of blood as staining, but in this case, blood purifies us. And by his own blood, he purified 
of the guilty. Peter puts it this way. Uh, since you've purified your souls in obeying the truth. So how do we apply Christ's purifying blood? By believing the gospel, which is what he means here by obeying the truth. Um, you purified your souls in believing the gospel and obeying the truth. See, everyone has the opportunity to apply the blood sacrifice to their own lives spiritually. Everyone. It's a universal offer. Come one, come all. Whosoever will may come. But only those who by faith respond obediently to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, to the convicting work of truth, Jesus Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, will actually be born again. Uh, if you go back to the upper room, there's an interesting conversation that takes place. And it kind of comes up twice. First of all, at the beginning in chapter 13, remember the, the upper room is that intimate moment that Jesus had where he instituted the Lord's Supper and talked about the blood of the new covenant. It's recorded by the, uh, John in John 13 to 17. And at the beginning, as they arrive, if you remember, Jesus washes their feet. Now, this is not an uncommon thing in their culture because when you walk around in bare feet or sandals on dusty uh, roads, your feet get dirty. So if you came to someone's home, it was un not uncommon to wash your feet so as not to track in the dirt and the dust. But what was unusual is Jesus offering to wash his disciples' feet. And I don't have it on the screen, but you remember the, uh, the way Peter reacts, typical Peter reaction. And he said to the Lord, you shall never wash my feet, right? And what did the Lord say? If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. In other words, you're not tracking with me. This, you don't see where this is heading. Not, this wasn't a heaven-hell thing. We often read every verse through the lens of heaven-hell. Like, oh, he must mean Peter's going to hell. No, that doesn't, that's not what he means. He's just saying, you're not really tracking with me. And Peter says, well, then if that's the case, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Remember that? If, I, if you need to wash me for me to have part in you. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, Peter. By the way, it's not just Peter. The you there is plural in John 13. He's talking to the disciples because he goes, And you are clean. And then he pauses and says, But not all of you. And Luke, or I mean, John then tells us, For he knew who would betray him. And that's why he said, You are not all clean. That's from John 13. A little bit later in the discussion, he brings this idea of purification or cleaning spiritually again. And he says, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So then faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. Jesus had said to them many times, verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life. They had believed the word which you have spoken, so they were clean. And that's what his blood accomplished. By his own blood, he purified the guilty of our sins, past, present, and future. And then, as I mentioned in Revelation, someday we're going to return with Christ to establish this kingdom, and we're going to be clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Why? Because we've been purified spiritually by his own blood, if you've trusted in Christ and applied that sacrifice on your behalf. So, he ratified the covenant, he purified the guilty, but also by his own blood, he clarified the symbols. We've talked a lot about the shadows and the symbols and so forth. And he brings that notion up again here in verses 23 and 24. He says, 
Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. See the contrast? You know, on earth, the sacrificial system, the, the priests had to bring in blood of the lambs and goats and whatever and, and purify them. But the heavenly things, the real reality that corresponds to the copy or the shadow, was purified with a better sacrifice. What was it? Well, Christ. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but he's entered into heaven itself, having shed his blood, and has now appeared in the presence of God for us. Jesus Christ's ministry on our behalf was a once-for-all ministry, a sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Remember back in Hebrews chapter 8, he had introduced this notion of how we serve just the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things. And uh, then he, in Colossians, Paul, who we know wrote Colossians, he may have also written Hebrews, but we know for sure he wrote Hebrews, uses the same thing when he talks about uh, these legalistic rituals are just a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. The writer of Hebrews has made it clear from the very outset of this letter that the substance of Christ... I mean, you could say the theme of Hebrews, I call it trusting God in trying times and unshakable faith, but you could ultimately say the whole theme of Hebrews is Jesus Christ because it's because of Him that we can have faith. And, and the same one who saved us, never forget that. This is the one in whom we put our faith for salvation. But for some reason, we Christians are prone to then put Him on the shelf and try to live life in the flesh. But this is the same Jesus who saved us. And he begins the letter by sort of introducing the recurring theme right off the top. He says, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in the time past to the fathers by the prophets. Remember the context. These were Jewish Christians who were very familiar with the prophets and the law and the sacrificial system and the priestly system. They knew about Moses and all the prophets. And they were contemplating reverting back to that kind of a system because of the persecution they were facing in Christianity. And so he, he hits it head on. First sentence out of the letter. Yeah, God spoke in the past through prophets. I get it. And they were important and they were part of God's plan. But guess what? In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom, he might add, I mean, I'm sort of putting words in the mouth of the writer, but this is the way I would say it if I had written Hebrews. I might add, he was appointed heir of all things. And by the way, it's through him, Jesus Christ, that the whole world was made. In fact, he is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of God's person. See, the Old Testament Jews, they revered Yahweh. They revered God the Father, and they understood that. But they, they missed God the Son. I mean, he was there. Angel of the Lord was most likely a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And he certainly talked about by the prophets of old. They knew about the Messiah and the Messianic hope. But they were just fixated on God the Father. So he's now saying right out of the chute, this Jesus is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had himself by himself purged our sins there it is that clean cleansing sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high that's the substance of christ everything else is the copy so uh, he 
clarified, he ratified the covenant, he purified the guilty, he clarified the symbols, and he also supplied the access. Now, let's not forget that, what he talked about there at the very end of verse 24 that we just read. Christ Jesus, by his own blood, supplied the access that we need to come boldly to the throne of grace. He says he appeared in the presence of God for us. He's our advocate. It's just like if you have to go to court, you're charged with a crime, or you're facing some other maybe civil complaint, you, you, you hire an attorney, and that attorney presents your case. And that's what Jesus did. He supplied the access. He went before the throne of God in heaven. And he said, Father, these are clean. These have been covered by my blood. In chapter 10, which I can't wait to get to, uh, he's going to say this. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Remember, the holy of holies, the holiest, is just a shadow. It's gone. The veil was rent in two, gone. And within a couple of years of him writing this, the existing Holy of Holies in the Judaistic system was going to be destroyed in the temple, Herod's temple. And uh, he says, because of the blood of Jesus, we have access to the holiest, that is, to God's throne in heaven by this new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, and that veil is his flesh. So the veil in the temple, which was torn in two, was symbolic of Christ's body that was ripped and torn apart and blood was shed at Calvary. He goes on, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled with an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He had introduced this same notion earlier, so he's just sort of coming back to it as he gets near the end. There's 12 chapters in Hebrews, so he's really sort of driving home the point and like a good preacher repeating certain principles that he had talked about earlier in chapter 4 when he said basically the same thing. Seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In Romans in a different context, talking to a different audience, a Gentile audience in this case, uh, Paul reminds us that it's because of Christ that we don't have to face condemnation. Who is he who can condemn? Christ, the one who died, and furthermore is risen, and he's even at the right hand of God where he makes intercession for us. So he passed through the heavens with his blood, and by his own blood he supplied the access. But then we find out he did a fifth thing, and that is he nullified the penalty. By his own blood, Jesus Christ nullified our penalty, which is eternal separation from God in a literal place of torment called hell. Notice what he says. That he should, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year, because then, he says, he would have had to suffer often. But he put away our sin once for all by the sacrifices at the end of the ages and he nullified the penalty so the jews had both daily and annual sacrifices they had to continually come back and go through the ritual for national judaism uh, and and the writer here is saying that is no more it's done and over with that there is no more penalty 
If you apply the blood of this sacrifice, you're good. It's kind of like Jesus said to the woman at the well. If you drink from that water, you're going to still have thirst. But if you drink from the water that I give you, you'll never thirst again. That is, if you believe the gospel. Again, he nullified the penalty. He's purged our sins that we just looked at a moment ago. Paul puts it this way using a theological term in the epistles, which is what the epistles really are, theological doctrinal meat. He says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So because of sin, and everyone's born a sinner, we face a Christless eternity in a place of torment called hell. The Bible talks about that a lot, the everlasting fire and so forth. But because Jesus shed his own blood, he essentially took that payment on himself. That's mercy. If we believe in Christ Jesus, the one and only way to receive the gift, then that penalty is removed, which is mercy, the withholding of judgment. Now we also get grace by faith, which is the giving of eternal life. Grace is a gift you don't deserve. Mercy is the withholding of punishment you do deserve. And at cross we get both. Grace and mercy. And by the way, justice is also satisfied at the cross because according to God's justice, blood had to be shed. Death had to happen to pay the penalty. And it did through Jesus Christ. So we get mercy and grace. And he nullified the penalty. But there's a sixth thing. Not only by his own blood did he ratify the covenant so we can look forward to the inauguration of God's covenant program purify the guilty, clarify all those symbols, supply our access to God and nullify the penalty, but he also satisfied the debt. He satisfied the debt. Notice this. He said, It is appointed for men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Okay? This is, again, the penalty of sin. We incurred a debt. When we sinned, we now have a debt upon us, a price on our head. Jesus told Adam and Eve, if you eat from that tree, you're going to die. We ate from the tree. We now have this debt, this judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. We'll come back to that in a moment. But Jesus plainly said while he was on earth in his earthly ministry, Assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life, and he shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So by his own blood, he satisfied the debt. We have to receive that satisfying payment by faith. And if we do, by faith, then we will never come into judgment. Peter puts it this way. For he himself bore our sins on his own body on the tree. He paid our debt. You know, you've heard it said, he paid a debt he did not owe. We owed a debt we could not pay, right? And uh, that we, having died to sin, might live to righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. Ephesians 1, Paul says, in him we have redemption, bought with a price, paid the debt, paid the price, right? Uh, the forgiveness of sins. He satisfied our debt. Colossians, same thing. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood. By His own blood, He satisfied our debt. So if you've trusted in Christ, you no longer have to pay that debt. And then finally, 
It's something that I get really excited about, what we've been talking about on uh, in our Bible study hour. By his own blood, he certified the kingdom. Because notice how the writer ends chapter 9. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time. We talked about that eagerly waiting. It's that apek decamai. means to expect the imminent return of Christ. And these Jews, these Jewish believers, Christians, needed to be reminded in the midst of unspeakable persecution that he's coming back. He's coming back. To deliver us, salvation there means salvation in the broadest sense of delivering us into the kingdom someday. And it's a rescue. And, uh, and so there's nothing wrong within the midst of persecution crying out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. I mean, who wouldn't want it to be today, right? We're not guaranteed it. We're not promised it. And frankly, we don't deserve it in America. American Christian churches, if I can digress for a moment, uh, we deserve to face the kind of persecution that most Christian churches have faced for 2,000 years. We've squandered our freedoms. We've bowed down and rolled over. We've given our freedoms back to the state. I mean, the church is apostate by and large today, which is a sign of the times. Peter, I mean, Paul talked about it. And most churches today are preaching a false gospel. They're not interested in the things of the word. They're, they're apostate. And they're worse yet, they're following a pagan government's policies and mandates and directives to worship the way they tell you, wear what they tell you to wear, come when they tell you to come, sit where they tell you to sit, you know, meet when they want you to meet. And, and that's not God's way. And by the way, that's not constitutional either. A lot of people have shed their blood to come to a country where they have the right to worship without government interference. And so these Jewish Christians 2,000 years ago were facing a lot of the same persecution that we're facing today. We would do well to listen to his exhortations, the writer's exhortations, and take comfort in them. He's going to appear a second time. When Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, having purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of God, the men in white raiment said to the disciples who were gathered on the Mount of Ascension, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back. And by his own blood, he certified that. He guaranteed it. He certified that the kingdom is coming. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, we read one of several places in the Old Testament where the first advent and the second advent of Christ coalesce. Now, they didn't understand it at the time that there would be a 2,000-year gap between them. But we certainly do now, having the full revelation of God. Unto us a child is born. That's Bethlehem. But he goes on to say, the government will be upon his shoulder. Of the increase of his government and his peace, there will be no end to order and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forevermore. I mean, whatever else we can say about our world today, it's certainly not a world of justice and judgment. It's a world that's under the sway of the wicked one, where there's injustice happening. That's because... Christ is not on the Davidic throne and the throne of the kingdom where he's going to rule with a rod of iron in perfect justice and bring judgment and tread the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God. 
That's not the throne that he's on right now. He's in the throne of waiting. And I have to believe that he's on the edge of his seat, <laughs> waiting as he watches things unfold. Isaiah 61 is another example of the first and second advents of Christ uh, coming uh, together. Jesus actually quotes this at the beginning of his Galilean ministry. Jim and I were talking about this before uh, the service. Um, it's, it's amazing how the Lord puts the same verses on your heart. We don't talk all week. We come to church on Sunday. You bring up Isaiah 61, and I'm like, yeah, it's in my sermon. <laughs> you know, but I guess great men think alike, right? Amen. That's what we're going to tell ourselves, you know. So, but in Luke chapter 4, at the beginning of Jesus' three-and-a-half-year earthly ministry, he goes into the synagogue. Do you remember that story? And he picks up the scroll, and he finds the place from where they were reading. Because, you know, you don't pick up a scroll like we do books today, these are called, a, this is called a codex or a codices, a bound book. It was a scroll. So he, he picked it up and, you know, he kind of found the spot where they had been reading and then he picked it up and he starts reading from there. And, and he reads from Isaiah 61. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, for the Lord has appointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison doors to those who are bound and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That is, in God's timetable, Christ had come. Remember Hebrews 1, same idea. But then he's in the middle of a sentence. It's actually in the middle of verse 2 of Isaiah 61. And he stops. Rolls the scroll back up. Sets it down. And you know what he said? Today, this prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. But that wasn't all the prophecy. There's more to go. And everyone within the sound of his voice knew that because they knew the prophecy of Isaiah. They had it memorized. What does the prophecy go on to say? It goes on to talk about his return to establish the kingdom. And, and the very next phrase is, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's why... That's the reason anybody who doesn't understand the distinction between the rapture and rescue of the church before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath and the second coming, just I, they must be reading a different Bible. And I don't mean that flippantly. I understand that good people disagree, but it couldn't be more clear. The second coming is about judgment and vengeance and wrath and judging sin and taking the throne and throwing off the shackles of the revived Roman Empire and the satanic Antichrist who's ruling it and ushering in a new era of peace and prosperity for a thousand years when he rules in perfect peace and justice because he's the Prince of Peace and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and so on and so forth. The rapture is nothing about vengeance. It's about comfort and joy and the blessed hope right? But isn't it interesting how Jesus quotes from Isaiah, and Isaiah the prophet under the inspiration of the Spirit revealed two aspects to the Messiah and his coming. One of them to preach the gospel in, in, at the appointed time in God's plan of the ages, but another time when he's going to come back in a day of vengeance. So by his own blood, Christ ratified the covenant, purified the guilty, clarified the symbols, supplied our access to God in heaven. He nullified our penalty, satisfied our debt, and he certified the kingdom. I was trying to think of another illustration to close this out and really help us understand the significance of the blood. You know, I started with that sort of 
hyperbolic, you know, it's, there's no more important subject in the Bible than I showed you how it's kind of tied to everything. But I want to leave you with this story. I remember this, and many of you do too if you're a sports fan, but in 1988 at the Summer Olympics in Seoul, South Korea, a pretty amazing thing happened. And we anticipated that it might, so we all tuned in and watched it. Because, number one, Carl Lewis was going for his fourth gold medal in the 100-meter sprint, known as the, the sprint for the fastest human alive, right? But there was another up-and-coming track star who had already made quite a splash and was already well into his prime, but giving uh, Carl Lewis some competition, and that was Ben Johnson of Canada. Do you remember this? Uh, he was expected to do well and to challenge Lewis for the victory. All eyes were on the starting blocks. The gun sounded. Ben Johnson broke out of the starting gates. I went back and listened to the announcer, and it was amazing. He said something like, I should have written it down, but something like, look at Ben Johnson, unbelievable start. And he just, he really got an unbelievable start like no other, you know, runner before him. And within two to three seconds, Johnson was far ahead of the field. He ended up setting the world record that day and the Olympic record at 9.79 seconds, fastest human being alive. The crowd went wild. All the other runners congratulated him. The, pick, the cameras are panning over to Carl Lewis, of course. Carl Lewis, you know, I didn't have my best race, and, you know, very gentlemanly about it. Ben Johnson, of course, was like, Man, this is great. I, my main goal, I just wanted to beat Carl Lewis, but uh, if I set the record, that's, that's great. Everybody was just amazed. The crowd was going wild. What a run by Ben Johnson. Until three days later. Because three days later, his blood was tested, and it turned out to test positive for anabolic steroids. He was stripped of his gold medal, which was then given to Carl Lewis, who had come in second, himself setting a U.S. record at 9.92 seconds. And Ben Johnson went back to Canada, a disgrace. The crowd didn't know it when he was running. The TV audience didn't either. When he was darting out of the blocks, the people went wild. When he did his victory lap, he looked like he was a winner. He felt like he was a winner. The only problem was... The judges went inside of his body and extracted what was on the inside and brought it out to the light. And his blood was tainted. It was tainted. Someday everyone's blood will be exposed to the light of the final judgment. Those who have Christ's blood running through their veins, through faith alone in Christ alone, will stand the test. But sadly, there will be millions who've not had a spiritual blood transfusion by faith alone and Christ alone, and their blood will be found tainted. So the question to leave with is what we just sang. Are you washed in the blood? Now, if you're here today and you know you've trusted Christ and you know you're certain of your home in heaven because of the promise of Jesus Christ, then praise God. You now have the righteousness of Christ on you and you should live out your days like the child of a king and reflect the righteousness of Christ positionally that is yours in your practical behavior. But I don't know everybody here. I know some more than others. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, you need to be washed in the blood.
don't leave here today without personally trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. You don't have to make an announcement. You don't have to sing a song. You don't have to do a dance. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to sign a card. You don't even have to raise a hand because none of that saves you. Salvation is personal faith alone in Christ alone, which you can do in the quietness of your own heart even right now. And if you've never placed your faith in Christ, do that now, even as we pray and even as the worship team comes back up to close out our service. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for just the great uh, reminder of just the efficacy of your Son and our Savior and the blood that, that He shed on our behalf. Lord, I pray that we would never forget uh, the sacrifice that was made for us and that we would be thankful and grateful for that sacrifice. Lord, again, if there's someone here who has never received the payment of the shed blood of Christ on their behalf by simply trusting in your Son and our Savior for eternal life, I pray that today would be that day of salvation. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.